it's funny. I'm glad you mentioned my latest book because I forgot about it. I, this afternoon I was thinking, geez, I haven't been able to write a book for the last few years, but you're right. I, I published a book last, last year. So <laughs> I guess I'm, I guess I'm doing okay. I just, I was getting an idea for a book today. But I need to take a break and write a book. Um, so uh, this evening, what we will do, what I will lead is uh, I'll lead a meditation and we do about a 30 minute meditation. So it's a pretty full period of time. Um, and, and I talk kind of give gentle guidance for about half that time. And then I'll leave, I'll leave a bunch of quiet time uh, for people to just sit uh, and work with the instructions or to work with their own practice. I'm going to increase my visual noise right now. Uh, to use Ileana's terminology, I can see more people. Um, and then uh, we'll talk. I'll talk. I keep saying "we" as though you know the royal "we" or something. I will talk for a while, and then and then take some questions. Um, you know, I uh, I have been teaching this court class for many years. Um, we would have to dig back in the spirit rock files to figure out how long, but um, there, there are times when I kind of track the 12 steps through the year, like do the month of the step. And then other times when uh, I go sort of more free form. And, um, and so I have a kind of another topic to get into tonight. That's a, definitely a, a recovery topic, but not, not about a specific step, but actually more of an overview. We'll see how that goes. Um, I, uh, I kind of just, I mean, some of you may not have ever sat with me before. And so just to sort of give you an idea, I, I like to be spontaneous and kind of talk about things that are feeling very fresh and alive for me. So, um, that also means that uh, I'm a little bit, um, there's a risk in that, you know, that uh, sometimes I wind up in places I didn't plan to go or I, that I don't know what, what I'm doing in this particular corner of the universe. So I hope you'll be uh, uh, a little I don't know if why asking you to be patient with me seems kind of ridiculous. So, like you can always just, if you don't like it, just click off. But I, I hope, I hope that will sort of give you a sense of, oh, that's what's going on. It's not that he's just spaced out. It's that, you know, I'm a musician. Uh, this last thing I'll say before the meditation. And, and I like, I do the same thing with music. You know, I like to pick up my guitar and just play and improvise. And, uh, and when I played lead guitar in bands, I would, you know, improvise. And, and that always uh, felt like, you know, the, the thing that had the most passion in it. And I feel the same way about the Dharma. I don't, I don't like the idea of giving a canned Dharma talk, you know, that's uh, just sort of, too too perfect. 
I like uh, a certain amount of uh, um, uncertainty, you know, uh, and discovery. And I hope that that will be, um, you know, inspiring or get, you know, feel rich to you um, in any case. So let us uh, begin the meditation. I'm going to take a more helpful posture. Um, you know, and, and uh, posture is, a, is an important part of meditation. You know, we've all seen the sort of uh, classic uh, images of the Zen meditator or the, the yogi sitting in full lotus or sitting, you know, uh, on a zafu and a cushion and you know, and that's that's a beautiful posture if you can uh, get into it, but um, it's not necessary. And and I think it also sometimes sets up sort of a an expectation, and and there can be some judgment in us. Oh, I'm not sitting in the right way, or or this isn't official meditation because I'm not, you know, twisted up like a pretzel. But meditation, although the the way we hold our body is important, it is an internal experience. It is founded in the in the mind, even though there's a physical somatic element to it. So find a way of sitting that really supports your mind being awake helps you to be clear-minded. That can also include a kind of sense of, of dignity. So being upright is very supportive of that. But if being upright isn't physically viable for you. It's perfectly fine to lie down, sit however, however you can sit relatively comfortably. And you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze. so that your attention turns inward very naturally. Just noticing where your mind goes first. If you're a regular meditator, maybe it goes immediately to the breath. Or maybe there are some thoughts that just have been streaming through the mind and you just keep going with them. Or maybe some aspect of your body, some sensation, maybe some sound nearby or neighbors are playing music or the dog is barking. You just, what do you first notice? 
So with our meditation practice, there's a kind of balance between just being aware of whatever is happening on the one hand, and on the other hand, intentionally directing the attention so that you can cultivate a calming or concentrated mind, a focused and clear awareness. So this balances we work with throughout our practice. We don't want to strive too hard to control what's happening because that turns into another form of grasping, really, of another form of stress. But we also don't want to just space out. We want to have some kind of structure to what we're doing. So one way to start our period of meditation is to just intentionally relax the body. Take the attention to different areas. Maybe start with the jaw. Relax your jaw, relax the face. And release the shoulders if there's any tension there. And soften the belly. Or maybe take a couple of deeper breaths so you can feel your abdomen expanding. Just let that be very soft. See how that, that softening itself brings a calming to the whole body. Now you're beginning to feel the breath. It's moving into the belly, it's moving into the chest, in and out. It can be felt at the nostrils, the touch of air passing through. As we pay attention to the breath, you can start to just first notice the in-breath in contrast to the out-breath. You can follow the breath at any, any point in the body where it's 
easy for you to feel that, just to be with it in a relaxed way. Subtle as it is, the in-breath and the out-breath are distinctly different. So identify those differences. You don't have to label the differences, just feel them. You can even make the mental note in, out, or breathing in, breathing out. The sense of ease, not trying to achieve anything. off the treadmill. Just here. Are there any feelings present for you right now? If you can breathe into whatever you're feeling. So this involves kind of openness in the body and a, a tuning in to the mood and the emotional energies in the body. We often ignore or override these subtle experiences until they become strong emotions. But if we are really attentive, we find that just as there are always sensations in the body, there are also always emotions or feelings, whether we say they're in the body or in the mind, In Pali and in Sanskrit, we say it's chitta. So it's just the, the heart-mind.
I'm just breathing, feeling the breath with whatever is arising in body or mind. If the mind is very busy, if a lot of thoughts are arising, it can actually give more space. Feel the breath. Can you breathe into the thoughts? Can you breathe with the thoughts? If the breath gets lost, then come back and start to really touch into the elements of breath. So not just in-breath and out-breath, but the whole flow from the beginning to the middle to the end of each breath. Each breath has its own lifespan. Its own particularity. Of course, they all seem the same, but we really pay attention. You see that each one is distinct and unique. along with the changing sensations, different changing perceptions, changing mental states. Where do you get stuck? Is there some thought that sweeps you away? Or maybe some energy in the body or restlessness that makes it hard to be still. Maybe there's an emotion that takes you over something that's been suppressed or put aside. The silence in the space allows it to come back.
whatever happens in our meditation, that's, that's the material we have to work with. It's not to have some ideal experience, but rather learn to be with whatever is arising. And seeing if you can maintain some balance, some equilibrium. Through it anything that comes up. So this is one of the qualities we're trying to develop with our mindfulness meditation. The quality of imperturbability. Unable to be bothered. I think we can all envision that this practice gives us a chance to try to embody that.
All right. I hope that was beneficial for people. Um, let's take a five minute break and then we'll come back for the talk. Okay.
not put a spirit rock, you know, that uh, in the community meditation hall, which is where my class used to take place, there is a obviously a big meditation hall, but there's also a area, kind of a tea area and, uh, and a book bookstore. And so during the break, <laughs> you would have been in there getting a cup of tea and then maybe going to browse some books. And then we would uh, ring the bell to bring you back. Um, mulling around with people. Something you may remember having done at some time in your life. <laughs> and hopefully we'll get to do again someday. Uh, right now you're just mulling around with me and your computer. So try to uh, bring some value to our mulling. So, uh, yeah, a couple things happened to me this week that got me thinking about a particular way of talking about recovery. Um, first, I was invited to come to a, a substance use disorder conference. <laughs> I love that kind of language. Uh, and um, it's in Wisconsin in September. So, Maybe I'll go uh, if we can work out the details. But um, but I, I was saying to them that um, in my past experience with conferences wasn't very good. Uh, that uh, I remember when I first when when Breath of Time came out, and I, st I started to kind of get this, um, you know, public. Uh, image or you know people some sort of thought oh this would be an interesting guy to have come speak to our our um conference and and the conference like in las vegas which is like such a weird place to have like an addiction conference it's like come to las vegas and study addiction <laughs> uh, you know walking through the casino you know which is already a psychedelic experience. If you've never walked through a casino, they are just kind of mind altering, which they're supposed to be, right? They're supposed to screw with your, I think they really are designed to mess with your brain waves so that you kind of like lose touch, like a uh, must gamble, must drink. Um, but what I found was that, um, you know, the psychologists and people that would come to these conferences weren't really interested in, uh, the 12 steps, you know, and actually they weren't really interested in Buddhism either. So I was like, why did you invite me? But, uh, you know, because they, they, what they wanted was, you know, tools for treatment, for helping their clients, which is great, which that, you know, uh, there's lots of tools and I'm just not the person to give them exactly. Um, you know, because uh, as I told this person this week who was inviting me, I said, you know, really, I'm more about working with people in recovery rather than working at a remove from people in recovery, like trying to help people to because what I do, it can't I can't teach what I do. I, it's just what I do, you know. <laughs> so. Um, so I said, but, you know, maybe I can come up with something that. Uh, 
is helpful. Like I could do a mindfulness workshop if you like, but then, uh, you know, I started thinking about one of my sort of models uh, for recovery, which I sometimes call the, the archetypal path of recovery and, and which is kind of meant to sort of have echoes of the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell and the mythologists talk about. Um, and, and it's to suggest that the 12 steps, uh, well, you know, being designed in a particular way and using particular language and coming out of a particular culture uh, actually are a, an expression of something that's more timeless and more of a perennial uh, kind of spiritual journey that in this case is focused on addiction, but, but uh, really... Uh, echoes something that that humans have been looking for and working with uh, throughout human culture the history of human culture and and that of course gets us to then go and look at how the how buddhism is that you know because we can kind of find that in the the buddha himself is can be an example of a you know a hero or hero hero's journey or hero heroine's journey. Um, so uh, so I, I, I thought I would talk about that a little bit, but now I thought of something else I want to say. <laughs> because when I said hero, I just became aware of the gender aspect of that. And, and that, you know, that's one of the flaws in, in talking about heroes is that uh, they're typically depicted as men. So uh, this is, this will be a side trip. I'll come back, hopefully, that I just sort of by accident, I've read in the past couple of years and recently particularly a couple of accounts both some fictionalized all of them actually fictionalized accounts of the story of the buddha's wife and there is in fact a, a book called the buddha's wife which was written by some friends of mine a beautiful book and and one that's it's actually about relational spiritual practice and it's a long story about why it's, they use the Buddha's wife, but in the middle of it is this beautiful uh, kind of uh, novella of an imagined spiritual path that the Buddha's wife was on. And she was known as Yasodhara. And, and it's, it's a really lovely, lovely story that one. And then recently I read a novel actually written by a woman from Marin who's a student of uh, Philip Moffat's called The Buddha's or The Bride, Bride of the Buddha. And that one is a full-on fictionalization where if you know the story of the Buddha that his, his attendant was Ananda, in this novel, his, Ananda is his wife who has pretended to be a man and ordains and becomes the Buddha's attendant but and he knows who she is but nobody else does and and that's actually it's a great i love the 
you know, the conceit of it. Because, you know, the Buddha's son ordained Rahula and became a monk. And so in the in the novel, it's like, well, I've lost my husband and my son now. I'm not and she and she, you know, has this spiritual longing as as she does in the the Buddha's wife as well. That 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 um you know, she wants to have her own path. So she's pursuing enlightenment too. And and then, the, so the third one was, I've been listening to through Audible, The uh, that wasn't a plug. Uh, I've been listening to an audio book. <laughs> you don't need to know where. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's biography of the Buddha, which is called The Old Path, White Clouds, which is another really beautiful book. And but with a lot of fiction in it, including a kind of fictionalized story of Yasodhara. And it got me thinking about why we want to give her a story, you know, and, and that that's a very modern thing. And in one way, I could critique that as being like, yeah, we want that, but is it? Is there, there's no, I don't think there's any basis for it. I think there's very little about her that I know about in the suttas. But, um, you know, it's very much comes out of our own culture that we want that. But but I realized when I said hero, hero that I also wanted that. And that's that's the, uh, you know, that's something that's changed in, in the world uh, that we've decided that, you know, we can't just like leave the wives behind, you know, because like, because it is a troubling story, the story of the Buddha leaving his, his wife and, and son. And a little bit, it feels like Thich Nhat Hanh in particular is trying to kind of say, oh, it's okay. Like she wanted him to pursue his path. Like, it's okay that you left me with the kid, the newborn, you know, and so I, 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 being the jaded, uh, you know, cynical Buddhist, I've always like, yeah, really, is it? Like, was he not a deadbeat dad? I mean, I don't know, you know. So uh, anyway, that's my little digression there. But let's let's consider the word hero to be uh, non-gendered, um, if we can. Uh, maybe we need another term. Maybe just forget the term altogether. So let me go to the steps and this idea that there is this sort of path that isn't, you know, the 1935 or 1939 version of language. And, and um, you know, we know it's a very, you know, the, a was very patriarchal and, you know, in the beginning again, this is, I guess, my night for feminism, which is interesting because March was internet, you know, uh, women's month, but, you know, that's not, you know, that, that in itself is such a trivializing. Oh, we'll give you a day. <laughs> oh, thanks. My wife was born on international women's day. So, you know, March 8th is her birthday. So anyway, uh, I told you, I'm glad I warned you tonight about how I, how I am. So, you know, what, what we know about spiritual paths when in the generic sense is that, is that they have to start, you know, they start in with a problem 
or they, you know, in the sort of mythical idea, it's like we start in the darkness, you know, um, or, you know, another way to think of it is uh, we start, we're facing in the wrong direction. I like that image. It's like, oh, like uh, I'm on my path. <laughs> and then somebody says, uh, no, 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 no. Turn around. And you're like, oh, oh, I see. That's because that's that's the way it felt to me as an addict that like, oh, I know where I'm going, you know. Oh yeah, this this my it was like, oh no, 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 no. It, it's not like, oh, no, no, just go turn left a little bit. It's like, no, you need to just completely turn around, completely different direction. So, you know, for the Buddha, we know the the story, and this is really mythology but but the, but the story is that he just he realized this impermanence he realized immortality he realized there was suffering and and that the idea that what he'd been facing you know the direction he'd been facing was this idealized view of life that was somehow provided to him through his you know his parents and you know protecting him and and um you know, being a prince, being uh, in this cocoon. But that that image in and of itself is a is really an image of childhood. And the and the the awakening the Buddha has to to mortality and suffering is really the, is the awakening to adulthood in in a typical human sense, I I would think. Um in any case, that's his thing. It's like, oh, it's like I live in this lovely, perfect world. Wrong, you know. And, you know, and he takes this flip, this complete turn away from that, which is going from luxury and comfort and all the, um, you know, privileges of power and wealth and in again patriarchy that he had because he was attended only by young women you know i wonder what went on there and he shaves his hair gets rid of the good clothes no more riding on animals no more riding on horses no more good food just a bowl and begging and off in search of of truth and you know that's that's a really a big flip, right? For us to come into recovery, it's not that radical, and yet real recovery. And uh, yeah, I'll just say that. So, you know, to to really start a path of recovery, we have to do something similar in that we ha- kind of have to reject our entire worldview and our whole like the thrust of our lives because we're rejecting not just the certain behavior of addiction which you know can take many forms but everything that's underlying that which is that pleasure and comfort are the ways to happiness uh selfishness ruthlessness uh uh Immoral, like lying, cheating, and stealing, that all of this can be part of addictive behavior, and, and that there has to be this real, you know, purification that happens. There has to be this real rejection of that, that whole 
kind of world and lifestyle of an addiction now of an addict. Now I know that everybody here was not, you know, knocking over banks or whatever, uh, you know, committing crimes, but there, you know, certainly anybody who was, uh, who identifies an alcoholic or, you know, even like alcohol problem, drug problem, did things that were harmful to, and and risky, you know, anybody who ever got behind the wheel of a car after drinking, you know, was risking murder, you know? And so, you know, maybe we got away with it. I know I did luckily, but it, the, you know, the, the fact that I would do that, you know, shows that there's like really a problem in my thinking that it's more important for me to drink right now than it is for me to protect, um, you know, the lives of other people, yeah. the selfishness implicit in that. Okay. So there's this, this waking up is the, you know, so the beginning of the path is in this lack of knowledge, what we call in, in addiction world denial, right? And then, Again, in the 12 step world, we talk about having a moment of clarity, which is a great, you know, term, I think one that captures uh, this whole idea, certainly the idea that the Buddha had a moment of clarity fits exactly with the kind of narrative. And so then, you know, the question is that then what, then what, you know, and I think I, I believe there's a lot of wisdom in the steps. And it, and it's interesting to me that the, that the then what in the steps is step two, which says we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, which means I, I, I don't think that the, the power greater than ourselves is the key part of that. It's the, it's the coming to believe it's because waking up to the being on the wrong path doesn't necessarily mean that you wake up to the right path, but even more than that, even seeing the right path doesn't mean that you uh, know that you can do it or that you, or that you know even how to get started. So the, the suggestion here is that we have to, have some trust and some faith to take the first step forward. You know. So we're stepping into the unknown, right? And that's what the, the 12 steps, what steps two and step three are really saying. Like, you know, you, you've been going in the wrong direction. And, you know, you need to go in another direction, but you're not going to know, really, if this is the right thing or if uh, it's going to work. But, you know, we've been there before, is the suggestion, because the steps, of course, say we did this, you know, this is what we did. These are our suggestions. You know, uh, we came to believe that there was this possibility and 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 it is in the in addiction this is a this is a big step forward because 
many people recognize that they have a problem, but they don't necessarily believe that they have the capacity to solve that problem. It can seem insurmountable. So, so that, that faith step is necessary to even take that first. Um, I'm mixing up the word steps and step, the first step with your foot forward, or however you are moving. And so the third step then says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So get rid of him. Let's get rid of God to just say, we made a decision. We made a decision. Now it's like we're, we're pointing our way. We've, we've, we've really, we're engaging. And there's commitment here. Uh, the Buddha has a lot of terms for um, how we engage in something. He talks about being ardent and resolute. You know, and I think that these uh, ideas are part of step three, that now we're really going to do this. You know, I've made the decision. I'm going to turn my will and my life over. Uh, again, the language is very bound up with a certain kind of religious context or religious uh, culture. But it it really does express the depth of commitment, turning your will and your life over to something, you know, to, forget about God. Like I said, to your path, to the path, to this journey, I'm going to put it all on the line. You know, that's clearly the Buddha did that, right? I mean, the Buddha you know, practically starved himself to death in his you know, sort of misguided attempts but that he came to see were misguided. But, but it, there was this intensity to his commitment, this ardency, this willing, this turning it all over. You know? Yeah, and there's a risk in that, right? Uh, maybe some of you have, you know, found yourself going in the wrong direction. I know before I got sober, I, you know, I followed this kind of, guru who, you know, I've since come to see as not, well, certainly not the right one for me, you know, who's like sort of offering something that I think was deluded. Um, but sometimes we have to make those mistakes. We have to try something, you know. And, and so, you know, at this stage, in the steps, it's then there's this commitment. And, you know, after that commitment, then there's this whole uh, process. And I think steps four through nine are really part of one process that, that I see as, as very separate from the first three steps and the last three steps. And that they are essentially, uh, well, uh, one uh, teacher Judith Regeer calls them interrupting the karmic flow. <laughs> it's a very you know Buddhist language. She's a Zen teacher, uh, and I would say they're they're more than interrupting the karmic flow. They are interrupting. They are redirecting the karmic flow of our lives, 
they are a process by which we can uproot. We are meant to uproot the karma, the movement of our lives and redirect it. And so in order to do that, the first thing we do in step four is we do this searching and fearless moral inventory. And it's, you know, again, language, you know, the moral part is a little, you know, what does that mean? You know, so, but to me, it's not even about morality so much as how have I gone wrong? (laughs) Let me count the ways, you know, let me go through my life and explore all the, and the, you know, the way I did it, and there's different ways to do the inventory process. The way I did it was I wrote down all the ways that I hurt people and it revealed a lot. So, but however we do it to me, it's about going back and trying to sort of detect the patterns that were both existent in us that were kind of, you know, arose out of our family of origin and uh, and our early conditioning, and then got reinforced through our behavior. So the sort of nurture nature, you know, how all of that flow, that karmic flow of our lives, what, what was that made up of? What were the elements of that? And so that, that to me is like what step four is. And then, Speaking it is a way of transforming it. It's a way of taking it, making sure that it does not become something that turns back on us as self-harm, because that, that's one of the risks of doing an inventory, is that instead of using it to learn and to grow and, and to change, that we rather take on shame and guilt and regret and shame and guilt and regret are obstructions on any path. They, they don't um, support the path. And so what, what really is meant to grow? uh, uh, Well, there's a a couple things that are meant to grow out of this. First of all, the path forward is meant to be, discovered in this process of writing and sharing, because we are sharing it with a wise person who is going to help us to see what it is that we've told them. I was telling Ileana before that uh, the great novelist, Thomas Keneally, who I uh, studied with in graduate school said when he wrote a novel, he didn't know what it was about until he had finished the first draft. So he had to write 300 pages before he knew, Oh, this is about that. You know, and and the inventory is like that, right? We don't really know what it's about until we get to the end and we look back at it and we share it with someone who helps us to look at it through a, a constructive lens, right? And and so it, it reveals the path forward, that it is, that is to say, the work that needs to be done. But it also is meant to help us. It, it almost forces us, if we are going to uh, survive it, to develop self-compassion and self-forgiveness because, and self-compassion and self-forgiveness are essential partners on the path of recovery because we fucked up a lot of stuff. We did a lot of harm to ourselves and to others. And how are we going to move forward without the guilt and shame and regret? Well, 
because we're going to do it by learning self-compassion and self-forgiveness. You know, and those things, you know, when we get to the end of this and we realize, oh, self, we can take away self. <laughs> we don't need the self part. Realize, oh, because they, when we learn self-compassion, we also learn compassion for others. When we learn self-forgiveness, we learn forgiveness for others. And most people do it the other way around. Most people develop compassion for others and forgiveness for others before they can uh, you know, develop it for themselves. In any case, here in this middle stage, the four steps four and five, step five is when we share the inventory in case you're not, you know, keeping the score at home of the steps. You know, th these are the elements of this, this stage. And, and then steps, step six is where we set the clear intention of the work to do as we go forward. Now, this is where the steps really diverge in my mind from the language of the steps really diverge from what I believe is the, the actual process. And maybe it's just, a, maybe it's a different process. I think it's gotta be the same thing because I just don't think stuff happens. I don't think that a spiritual path, I don't think they can be really that different. Anyway, that's, uh, so step six says we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, like, which, you know, if you take rid of, get rid of God, so then it just means you're, in, you're ready to change. But to me, in order to be ready to change means more than I'm ready to change. It also means I understand what I need to do now. I'm ready to do this work and I know what it is because if you say you're ready, you know, you've got to know what you're ready for or else you're lying. I'm ready. And then somebody says, well, you got to cut off your arm. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that was involved in this. So, so the, as I say, four and five, I think prepare us to know what the work is. And then step six is like, I'm ready to do this. I'm, I have clarity about what must be done. Step seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, which is just the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. I just hear the Bible there. It's like, and and I'm not in the Bible. You know, I'm not, I'm not going there. It, to me, step seven is, as Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu says, we, we humbly, we, well, if I could remember what he said, I have it here, don't I? Oh, brilliant. Somewhere here. Um, you guys should have this memorized because I say it so much. But what, sometimes when I get in the flow of talking, I forget about things that I usually memorize. Um, anyway, he, he says that we are not praying to God. We are we are praying to the law of karma, and we are, we are trying to activate the law of karma. So through our actions rather than our words, we beseech the law of karma through our actions, not through our words. That's essentially what he says. So that's like really bizarre language. Doesn't mean really mean anything in the English language to beseech the law of karma. So we have to explain what that means in the Buddha, Buddha recovery Dharma language. What it means is that we change the way we think we change the way we speak and we change the way we act. Now, in order to do that, we've set the stage for that, right? 
we have set ourselves on the path. We've committed ourselves to the path. We've gained clarity about what specific things need to be done on the path. And now we're going to activate. So karma, as I said, interrupting or diverting the karmic flow. Karma is created in three ways, according to the Buddha. It is created by thoughts. It's created by words. It is created by deeds. So the typical, you know, 12-step program is a program of action, you know, and the key karmic step we take to get sober is we stop drinking and to get clean is to stop taking drugs and, you know, stop being codependent. We stop, you know, giving ourselves away, et cetera. You know, whatever it is, it's, it's about action. It's the deeds. But recovery is more than that. We know that. Recovery is actually in the mind. And of course, it's expressed through the body. But if it's only through the body, then it's never fulfilled. It's never completed. There's always confusion, pain, and even risk of relapse. But more importantly, there's just no spiritual awakening. There isn't the joy. There isn't the life that we really wanted. We have to, it's our minds that have to be changed, you know, and we can't change our minds by just, oh, I'm going to stop thinking, right? I know, like I stopped drinking, so I'll stop thinking too. Well, no, of course, that's not, that's not the path. So this is what mindfulness gives us the tool to work on as we start to watch our mind. And then we, we start to realize that all that stuff that's in our mind, that we actually have some agency in relation to it. You know, we're not, we don't have to be victims of our own minds. And, and this is, you know, this is work. <laughs> and, and it's going to continue to require self-compassion, self-forgiveness, because even as we turn to the mind and watch the mind and, and decide we're going to change our mind, we realize I'm back at step one because I'm powerless over my mind. So I have to start in a way, I have to go back and start the steps all over again and just do the steps in relation to my mind. I'm not going to go do that right now. <laughs> but you know, the, the point is that you know, this is our practice. This is, this is now I'm making very clear the argument for the importance of mindfulness meditation on a path of recovery, because without mindfulness of the mind, without mindfulness of the thoughts, there is no possibility of change. And what we have to see, what we, the key is always goes back to what the Buddha taught, which is about suffering and the end of suffering. The key in looking at and working with the mind is seeing the things that are causing suffering in your own mind. What are the thoughts? What are the beliefs? What are the habit patterns? What are the things that I'm stuck to? What are the things that I am fighting away from that are in my mind? And as I see those, those are the ways that I have to change. This thought, this habitual complaint, this habitual self 
pity, this habitual anger, this habitual indulgence in, you know, sadness and, you know, the, the things that we cling to. And this is hard. You know, this is why it's not a path that just, okay, I'm done. Step seven, good, move on. No, uh, this is, this is our, a lifetime's work. You know, and, uh, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, you know, there's transformative moments that are supposedly alter certain things forever, but there's never really the suggestion that, you know, you're rid of, you know, your own, these sort of qualities of the mind. You know, even the Buddha in his story, throughout his life, he keeps being visited by Mara, who is like the embodiment of evil or the tempter or the devil. But he's really just, you know, the, uh, the Buddha's own negativity, the Buddha's own conceit, the Buddha's own hindrances, you know, they visit him. Now, whenever Mara appears, Mara comes and says something to the Buddha, like, you know, you could have all the money in the world if you want. And the Buddha always sees Mara and he says, I see you, Mara. And then Mara slinks away, which is just a, you know, embodiment or depiction <coughs> of our minds seeing the destructive thought or feeling. And when we see it, letting it go. And so that's just what's being played out in that. But the idea, the idea that the Buddha um, kept being visited by Mara throughout his life makes me feel a whole lot better. Because if he was completely enlightened and he's still gotten visited by Mara, then it's okay that Mara still visits me. I mean, only occasionally, very rarely, but, you know, now and then, like every 12 seconds. So, uh, as usual, I often find myself getting to step seven and then feeling like, hmm, that's kind of where I wanted to go. But I'll go on and kind of wrap up this kind of uh, as best I can. Is what, what I think happens after step seven and and... You know, step seven, as I say, I think is really setting ourselves on the path of of uh, transforming our thoughts, words, and deeds. Step eight moves us into a whole other realm, which is the social realm, the relational realm. We made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them. And it's it's clearly an acknowledgement that while there's a lot we can do on our own, we are not solitary individuals. We are social beings. And if we don't heal on the social level, we'll never actually have a have fulfillment. And again, there, there will be this sort of cloud of risk hanging over us. And I, I just put a cough drop in my mouth. <laughs> if sometimes, like when I move it around in my mouth with earbuds in, it makes a loud noise. And I always think, Maybe it's, you guys can hear it. I don't know if you can, but if you can, that's what you're hearing. Um, nonetheless, it's like, like this a step moving from the internal into the external, right? And, and one of the things the Buddha says in the Satipatthana, the 
four foundations of mindfulness. He, he, in every stage of those four foundations, he says, being aware internally and being aware externally. And we know like that's, like that's critical, right, to our lives. It's, if we're just focusing on me, 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 you know, uh, we're going to miss out and we're going to get into conflict. So oh, this external healing, I think, I think that that turn too, uh, after step seven, uh, points to, you know, the entire turn of the steps that gets uh, fully realized in step 12 this turning outwardly and, and, and starting to, it's like, uh, uh, we could say it's like integrating back into society okay? and integrating our new selves. That's what we try to do is bring our new selves back into these relationships that where there are wounds. And there, it's not always possible because, because others are not always willing, you know, others are not always open to, to our, our new self. Sometimes our new self is a real threat to others, right? But hopefully, you know, by and large, there is this sense now of reintegration that our new self is recognized and brought back into the, you know, the, whether it's the family or the uh, social circle. Step 10 then is kind of, now we've completed this process that I said, like four through nine, the, the redirecting the karmic flow. <laughs> quite, a turn, what a, quite a turn of phrase. Uh, and step 10, we know, is a, is a reiteration of steps four through nine. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It's, it's saying, and it's, that statement is saying, and Mara will keep visiting you, so you'll need to be ready. You know, and I don't think that this is a once and done process. And again, I find that helpful and inspiring and supportive because, again, it can support self compassion and self forgiveness. Because it's saying, okay. Just because stuff keeps happening doesn't mean that you failed at doing the steps. <laughs> you know, up, back to go. You have to go back to go and start over again. No, it means life goes on. You know, step step eleven. Uh, you know, for me, step eleven is out of place because it's I use uh, certainly meditation. Uh, for every step, and, and for me, meditation is is important for every step. But I think in the twelve steps, what it's trying to do here is raise this whole process, and and finally really recognize and acknowledge that this whole process is a spiritual journey, and that it's its fulfillment requires us to explicitly now see it as a spiritual journey and that it must be, we must step into this process of prayer and meditation in order to fully embody this journey.
it's also as the steps are all really trying to do again trying to discourage us from thinking about this as self you know self will or ego or me i me mine you know praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out you know again get rid of the him and the the god from it but clearly it's trying to keep us from thinking like i'll pray and meditate and figure it all out you know and and what i i prefer to think of this this aspect of you know praying for knowledge of his will for us as cultivating intuition and developing the sensitivity to be able to distinguish between ego craving and wisdom you know and and that starts by watching our minds right uh, that's where ego and wisdom come from <laughs> and if we meditate enough and carefully and pay attention and sh- and work with wise people we we start to be able to distinguish better between the ego driven self-centered wishes and the intuitive wisdom and we can't always know sometimes we make mistakes but that's what uh, that's what this part of the step i think is is really pointing to not that like god is going to whisper in our ear but that we come to trust and it says that in the 12 steps we come to trust our own intuition and our own our own wisdom really important you know i actually saw my sponsor my former sponsor recently because i was invited to speak at a kind of a re, there's like a reunion meeting that goes on of of a bunch of people that got sober at my home group in venice beach back in the 80s and they invited me to speak and my sponsor was there and i broke up with my sponsor <laughs> because he didn't want me to break my anonymity uh, when i published one breath at a time and he said some things that were out of you know were off base and i think he knows that now but but um but i was uh 18 years sober at the time you know i wasn't like a newcomer and i felt like mm, no i i disagree with you and and it's okay for me to disagree with you and you know why did i get sober if i'm trying to be happy joyous and free i need to be able to make my own decisions now <laughs> it can be really helpful to have a sponsor in the first 6 months or the first 6 years even for me for sure but at a certain point having somebody tell me not to do make you know make major life decisions for me is like no that's not very helpful i i need to do that for myself and especially because people die and then what do you do you know anyway step 12 you know is the 
as we know, the kind of culmination, the fulfillment of the steps and, and of a spiritual journey, which is the spiritual awakening, right? Uh, okay. You know, and, and as I've argued before, I think that every one of the steps is a spiritual awakening, but, um, but certainly we can see that there's this, you know, this view, this broad view, this wise view, this clarity that has come if we've really wholeheartedly uh, stayed involved in this process. And then, of course, the beautiful aspect of it, the realization that whatever I've done was ultimately not for me. You know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. You know, it wasn't having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. We retired to our house in the country and, you know, blissed out. You know, the Buddha, having had a spiritual awakening, came back to the world. And that's kind of one of the classic parts of the heroine's, heroine's journey. <laughs> um, that one returns after one has attained awakening. And this is seen in, there's a, the famous Zen teaching of the, the ox herder pictures of coming back to the marketplace. So that, you know, that resolves it. And it, and it, it, it's a way of acting out the insight into not self. It's a way of, acting out the insight into the suffering that arises through self-grasping. And so the, and then the last line of the steps, we continue, we practice these principles in all our affairs, has this kind of enveloping idea to it that I love as well. It's this suggestion that this isn't something that you just do on Sunday mornings or that you do 20 minutes a day or, you know, this is, this is about your life. This is about who you are. And, and I know there are people who get sober. And it's like, okay, I go to my meetings and then I have my life. You know, it's not me. <laughs> uh, you know, my life is my life and to, and to sort of split off. Oh, I don't tell people that I'm sober or whatever, you know, um, that, that seems like um, really uh, not, not getting the full serving. It's like all you're getting is the appetizer. You know, I want to have all, you know, all four courses of my meal, all 12 courses, I suppose I'll say, of this meal, of this recovery meal and, and live it, you know, and be it. Uh, and you know that's that's where the richness of it really lives is in that full full embracement 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 wow is that a word embracing of the path so you know as i went through this today i thought that might be an interesting book <laughs> so you may have heard the outline of my next book tonight uh, in real time, um, or maybe not. Uh, one never knows. So that was fun.
for me. Hope it was fun for you. <laughs> and uh, amazingly enough, it kind of worked into the time frame of what uh, was meant to be. The, the class, officially, we have two hours, which means we can go until 9.15 Pacific time. So we have a few minutes for people to um, chime in if anyone wants to share anything or uh, ask a question. Mm -hmm. 